It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is The Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation, and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Today we have Dr. Neil Nathan on, and we are really honored and excited to have him on. So let's go ahead and get started. So how are you today, Dr. Nathan? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. I'm really excited to get into this conversation all about mold toxicity and the biotoxin pathway. So um, let's go ahead and just get started with a general overview of the biotoxin pathway. Okay. <clears throat> I'd, I'd rather s step back a second yep. and help the listening audience to understand um, how common mold toxicity is and how important it is before we jump into the details. So it's estimated by experts that there are over 10 million Americans right now who have some symptoms of mold toxicity, many of whom don't know it, and many of whom their healthcare providers don't know much about mold toxicity and never suggested to them that's even possible. So first of all, this is really common. And so for people out there going, well, why would I care about mold? That's got to be pretty minor. Everybody gets exposed to mold a little bit, right? Not exactly. And the effects of mold are different, meaning when we first started learning about mold, we were, we were in the category of mold allergy, which we've known about for years. So, okay. So mold allergy can cause a runny nose, a stuffy nose, sinus issues, uh, watery eyes. It's an allergen. It's only in the last 20 years that we've begun to understand that there's another component of mold, which is its toxicity, which is that when people are exposed to mold, they may get really sick and it may affect virtually every part of their body because it creates a total systemic inflammatory response. And that inflammation can affect um the lungs, the heart, the brain, the sinuses, the gut, uh, the kidneys, you name it. Every organ in the body can be affected. So just wanted to start with, this is important. 
So Definitely. now we can go into the details, but I just wanted to get the audience engaged as to um, this is something you probably want to know about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that was a great way to preface that because it's so much more common than you think. Like, I I mean, just talking to people, they're like, oh yeah, I, I had to move out of my apartment because I had black mold. And I'm like, there you go. Like it, it's a lot more common than, yeah, for sure. Okay. So, okay. So the biotoxin pathway um, was developed and published in 2005 by Dr. Richie Shoemaker. And it laid out the, a very detailed, clear way in which mold toxin creates this inflammatory effect that affects the whole body. So it's a kind of a biochemical map of how exactly mold toxin gets into cells, affects cellular chemistry, that begins to go to the brain and affects the way brains make a variety of very important hormones, and then we're off to the races. Yes. So when we're talking about affecting the cellular chemistry, you know, I was intrigued of some of the the neuro effects of biotoxins in general and like the hormonal effects. So kind of going to the I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but just the pituitary gland and like some of those hormonal effects. Could you go into that a little bit? Sure. So a number of very specific hormones are affected directly and immediately by mold toxin. One is called MSH, melanocortin stimulating hormone. Another Mm -hmm. one is a peptide called VIP, uh, vasoactive um, intestinal polypeptide. Now, Those are fancy names. Forget the alphabet soup that goes along with it. Now, VIP, which you may never have heard of, is a peptide made in the brain and the gut, which regulates inflammation. So if the body becomes unable to make VIP, if it does become inflamed, it can't bring that inflammation under control, can't settle it down. So that becomes unusually important in this particular instance. MSH is, again, another hormone made in the brain, which most people haven't heard of or spent much time with. There are a lot more common hormones, of course, adrenal, thyroid, sex hormones that everybody's heard of. But MSH has a regulatory effect on those. Bottom line, mold toxin affects the pituitary's ability to regulate all of the hormones it controls. And we know that the pituitary is what's called the master gland of the body in that. So really important hormones, adrenal, thyroid, and sex hormones especially are regulated by the pituitary and dysregulated by mold toxicity. Means that the patients who have this are likely to have uh, thyroid that's out of whack, adrenal that's out of whack, sex hormones that's out of whack for males and females both. So this is the beginning of a profound effect of mold toxicity on the body. Yeah, exactly. And so I know there's also, you know, an extreme thirst that some patients have when they have mold and, and that's due to the antidiuretic hormone of the pituitary. So how does that connect in? 
Again, it's an, the ADH, antidiuretic hormone, is another hormone made by the pituitary. And again, it becomes inadequate when you have mold toxicity. And so those patients are prone to having an insatiable thirst and, um, and going to the bathroom a great deal more than what would be normal as a key symptom that going, yep, that's out of balance. Okay. So it's just the biotoxin still affecting the pituitary. It's not yep. like a consequence to the MSH being low or anything like that. It's, it's a direct effect on the pituitary. That's correct. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, that <clears throat> definitely takes a hit, which, like you said, the master gland producing all the hormones in the body or, you know, helping to produce them. So that's that's a big thing. Um, so going from that, let's get into, because we know that the biotoxins affect our hormones. Let's start getting into how we can bind up these biotoxins of the mold and using things like charcoal and um, cholesteramine, I believe is also a really good binder. But yeah, I want to go into not only the binders themselves and like what they can do, but how to approach this process in a strategic way so that you're not, you know, just exacerbating symptoms. Okay. So again, I'd like to back up for a second before I get into binders. I'd, I'd like to first help the listening audience understand what kind of symptoms would mold toxicity cause so you can begin to put this in the context of yourself, a friend, a loved one, family member, like, like again, what should I be looking for? If this is so common, what are we going to get here? Now, again, all of this is from inflammation. We've talked about a piece of this, which is the hormonal part of it. But the inflammatory part affects every system of the body. To be more specific, in the lungs, you can get what looks like asthma or bronchospasm. You can get shortness of breath, which is not asthma. You can get what's called air hunger a symptom where you feel like you can't take a deep breath and you're not getting enough oxygen to really meet your needs. In the, uh, in the brain area, the inflammation of the brain causes a wide variety of symptoms, including cognitive impairment of every type, meaning difficulty with focus, memory, concentration, um, Word finding is a particular common thing where you you know the word and you just can't remember it that moment. In fact, it doesn't come back very quickly. In fact, uh, Dale Bredesen, who's done some remarkable work on Alzheimer's disease, um, has discovered that 60% of the patients that he treats successfully for Alzheimer's disease have mold toxicity as a major component of the many things that are triggering inflammation in the body. So um, neurological conditions like MS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's disease can be triggered by mold toxicity. And here's the good news. If that is what's going on, if you catch it soon enough, it can be successfully treated. Okay. Then we have a host of other brain-related issues, which is mold toxicity inflames the limbic system of the brain, which controls sensitivity and emotion. And it also inflames the vagus nerve, which affects the autonomic nervous system. So a large percentage of patients with mold toxicity have 
anxiety. And this is what our patients call physical anxiety as opposed to situational anxiety. What I mean by that is situational anxiety is if your in-laws are coming for a visit or you're getting an IRS audit or you have an exam coming up, most people would be anxious about that to some degree. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about going along, nothing is going on, don't even have any thoughts in your head that are particularly upsetting or disturbing, and boom, you're anxious. You're anxious to the point of a panic attack sometimes. So it's anxiety, it's depression, it's mood swings, it's OCD, and if you have any underlying psychological condition like bipolar or schizophrenia, it'll make it worse. So any psychological condition can be triggered or worsened by mold toxicity. In the gastrointestinal tract, bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal cramps, abdominal pain, almost any symptom you can imagine can be triggered by mold toxicity. It tends to cause a wide variety of eye symptoms, blurred vision, double vision, floaters, it can cause sinus issues, especially chronic sinus congestion. It can affect the nerves. It can cause a peripheral neuropathy. It can cause joint pain, muscle pain, muscle weakness, so headaches. So this is a wide, wide array of symptoms that you can get from it. And because we are all biochemically and genetically unique, everybody's going to be a little different. But any degree of this constellation of symptoms should get you to think about mold toxicity, especially if you have a bunch of them. Because these are the type of symptoms. If you go in to see your healthcare provider and you tell them, I've got all of this, they're going to look at you like you have two heads and they're going to tell you that this is in your head because nobody could have all of these symptoms and they would be wrong because yes, mold toxicity can do it. And by the way, there are other conditions that can do all of this as well, like Lyme disease and the co-infections of Lyme disease. Certain other infections can do it as well. Um, several other types of environmental toxins can do it as well. So if someone, if you go to see a doctor and they are listening to your symptoms, you know how sick you are, but the person listening to you is rolling their eyes and going, oh, really, right? Then you're in the wrong office. You need to find someone who actually understands what these symptoms might mean so you can get the proper treatment. Because the bottom line throughout all of this, my my take-home message is going to be, everything I talk about is treatable. So I, I, I wanted to back up a little to, for, the, for the audience to really begin to put this in perspective. Having said that, again, let me try to take this in a methodical way. So the first thing, question, before we get to binders, the first thing that we want to think about is, okay, if I had this, how would I diagnose it? How do I go about knowing that I really have this? Okay. The most accurate and useful test is very simple. It's a urine mycotoxin test. You can collect a urine specimen in the morning, and you can send it off to any of several laboratories, which can measure mycotoxins, which are mold toxins, in your urine. Here's the deal. If you have a urine that's loaded with mycotoxins, 
you have it. The only way they can get into your urine is if it's in your body. So very straightforward test. There are some less specific tests, but this is by far the most accurate. And the reason I want to talk about it is that it tells us which toxins you have in your body because different molds make different toxins and different toxins have different effects and we treat them differently. So it really helps us not only to know, yes, you have mold toxicity, but I know which toxins you have. Now I know which binders I can use to treat those bind, treat those toxins. Okay. So sorry for backing up, but before I jump into binders, I, I want the audience to know that we use different binders for different toxins based on what we know is already in their urine. And that gives us a much more scientific and effective way to go about doing it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, and I do want to back up one more thing um, about the GI tract. You were mentioning symptoms um, there. So, and this is, this is a little bit off topic, but I just wanted um, to touch on it. Do you see like SIBO and Candida, are those pretty much almost always in patients with mold toxicity? Absolutely routine. The vast majority of our patients have SIBO and have uh, food allergies because they have leaky gut and, and they have Candida, which goes along with the mold. Uh, so it's not 100%, it's not universal, but pretty close. And since okay. you're bringing it up, I want to emphasize one of the teachings of functional medicine has been from the beginning, you've got to fix the gut first before you do anything else. And I'm going to tell you all that that's not true with mold toxicity. You have to treat okay. the mold toxicity and candida first, or your treatments for the gut will not work. Okay. You may that's, get a little that's better. That's really important to, to know. It's actually. very important. I can't count the number of patients that I've had refer to me with SIBO, with IBS, with all times of intestinal dysbiosis. They've been treating this by the usual methods, which work for people. If it's not triggered by mold and candida, it'll work really well. But if it is, these folks have been treating this for two, three, four years unsuccessfully and not gotten well. They'll yeah. take Zyfaxin for their SIBO, It'll help for a while. It'll come right back. It's like a revolving door. So I want to emphasize that if anyone has those symptoms, look for mold and candida first, treat it first, then your other treatments will be way more successful. Really good to know. And one more note on that. What is the difference exactly between mold and candida? Like between the fungal candida and, yeah. They're different species of fungus. That's all. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're cousins. And what it, the difference clinically is that we use different medications to get rid of candida versus different medications to get rid of mold. The medications for, mold, for candida don't work on mold. Okay. So, so that's why it is helpful to distinguish it. And there are certain tests which can tell us as a guess which patients are more likely to have candida also, so we can figure that out. For example, on the urine mycotoxin test, which we talked about, um, 
the mycotoxin gliotoxin is made specifically by candida. So if I have a high gliotoxin level, there's a high likelihood that that patient has candida as well. Okay. Another test, which is less specific for mold, uh, is a Great Plains oat test, organic acid test. Yep. On that on that test, there are the first section of the test, it's a urine test, it's called fungal elements. And one of those is a test called arabinose. If that's elevated, then there's a high likelihood of candida in the system. So again, okay. we can get we can get an idea. There are some antibody tests to candida, which some doctors use, and I don't find that particularly accurate because an antibody test only tells us that the body's immune system saw candida at some point and made antibodies. True. It doesn't tell us that they're gone. I have no idea if they're there or not there because we have in our body what we call immune memory so that our immune system will remember something that it reacted to so that it can actively go after it again. So if you get an elevated candida antibody, that doesn't mean you have it now. It means you had it. So the other tests are much more useful in telling us what's going on right now. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for answering that. So you were mentioning that the the medication approach would be a little bit different between the two. Would um, would the binder approach be be the same, or I guess different binders for different species? So yeah, the answer is a little bit different. Um, we don't have binders for candida per se. We have binders for gliotoxin, which will show up in the urine. Okay. So coming back to the original question about binders, again, I want to put it in perspective. Sorry for backing up so often, but I, I hate to jump into a detail before the audience has a better perspective about what we're kind of talking about. No, for about. sure. Yep. Once you make the diagnosis of mold toxicity, there are three main components to that diagnosis. Number one, you have to evaluate the patient's home and work environment to be sure there isn't any mold there. Bottom line, and it's a big one, if you are living or working in a moldy environment, you cannot get well. You can get a little bit better if you treat it, but you can't get well. And there's no negotiating with it. It's a very big issue for a lot of people. Not everyone are in a position to move from where they live or change their residence or afford remediation, which can be quite expensive. So this yeah. is big. We still have to work with that because the bottom line is going to be if our patient is living or working in a moldy environment, they cannot get well. And that is job one. Okay. For sure. In terms of treatment, in addition to looking at those areas, then we have binders and antifungals. And let me explain the uses of, the, of, of both. If we catch mold toxicity fairly early, our patient may not have, and the word we use for it is colonized. But that means if you are in the presence of mold long enough, the mold will start growing in your gut and sinus areas. And the word is, again, colonized. So that you could have lived in a moldy environment 15 years ago, 
but still be carrying mold in your body, making the toxin ongoing. So many of our patients will say, I have a brand new home, spanking new, can't possibly be mold in it. A, you may be wrong, because when homes are being built, a lot of builders are very sloppy about keeping moisture out during the building. Um, for example, right this moment, I'm building a home in Oregon, and um, that's a pretty wet environment. We went to great lengths to be sure that our building started in the dry season and that it was basically completely framed and roofed and walled in before the rains came. Okay. okay. Driving around, looking at my new home, which is not finished yet, in Oregon, there are a whole bunch of homes going up in torrential rains. And all of the um, wood is being exposed to. This is this is a recipe for what we call a water damaged building. And so I, I I shudder to think that people building a brand new home may be moving into a toxic home without having any grasp that that's happening. So again, I, it, it's it's about water damage to buildings that creates the mold, and those are very common in this country. So, yeah. Again, so coming coming back again to this concept of colonization, if you have mold toxicity, do not assume it's necessarily where you're living now. It might be fine, which is great. Then you can heal from that. But you you may then have to think about where you picked it up. And it's very common for me when I'm talking with a patient, my, one of my questions is always going to be, um, do you see any mold in your home? Do you smell it? Do you see it at work? Do you smell it? Has there been any water damage to either? And a lot of people will go, now, 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 that can't, that can't apply to me. But the seed has been planted. I can't count how often when they come back for their second visit, they'll say, you know, I'm thinking about that question you asked me. And... You know, we did have a, a flood in the basement a few years ago. It wasn't really cleaned up all that well. A water heater blew up um, in the, on the first floor and it leaked for a while. I'm not sure how well we cleaned that up. There's been um, heavy rains coming in through the wall. The attic has got a drip coming through. So most of my patients, when they start thinking about it, realize oh my goodness, I may have a real reason that I have been exposed to the possibility of mold here. And indeed, that's key. Okay, so I'm going to come back now to binders. Binders are, binders are first before we get to antifungals. Some people will never need antifungals. Binders alone will cure them. In my world, that's rare. Most of my patients have already colonized. But if you get lucky, all you need to do is take binders. So to be more specific, for each of the mold toxins, we know that there are specific binders that work for them based on what's in the medical literature and in the research. For example, one of the most common toxins is called okra toxin. And that is bound weakly by activated charcoal, but better by certain medications like cholestyramine, which you mentioned, and Wellcol. Gliotoxin, which we've been talking about, which is made by both Aspergillus and Candida, is best bound, is best bound by bentonite clay and by Saccharomyces boulardii, the good probiotic yeast. 
and so on. Um, for those who are interested in the details, I have that laid out um, in the um, several of my books. Uh, the, my book, Toxic, um, Heal Your Body from Mold Toxicity, Lyme Disease, Multiple Chemical Sensitivities, and Other Environmental um, Toxins, um, has a, a long whole chapter devoted to this, the details of which toxins are developed by which mold, the details of which medications and supplements work. So if you want to know more, it's there. And if you want a shorter book, I have a updated ebook called Mold and Mycotoxins, which is available also from Amazon, called Current Evaluation and Treatment 2022. So it's only 40 pages. And if you want to get started on understanding mold toxicity, that would be a, an easier place to start. Um, the toxic book, which has been a, a bestseller for many years here, um, has really lays out not just mold, but the whole inflammatory process caused by viruses and infections and Lyme disease and how to look at it and how to treat it. So again, that's... And, and as a side note to the listening audience, I'm going to be linking all those uh, great resources in the show notes. Um, I personally have read a lot of the material and it's, it's invaluable. So it's great stuff. So it will be linked there. Thank you. So, so anyway, that's binders, and we can go into more detail if you want. And then the last piece of the equation is if we know that someone is colonized, meaning they're not responding to what we're doing with binders alone, then we may need to use antifungal medication and anti-candida medication. And often diet becomes important as well. Definitely. So... One thing about binders is I want to talk about the more prescribed, not not the natural binders, but some of the medications. Um, do you typically see that without like something like Wellcall or cholestyramine, the patients won't get better or do they have to kind of move into that medicinal approach as well? Again, it depends on which toxins are in their body. Good if they have a substantial amount of okra toxin, they're going to have to use it. It's very rare for someone to be able to use the natural binders and pull that particular toxin out of the body. For other toxins, it's not necessary. So I don't always use Wellcola cholestyramine. Um, it depends really on what I see in my patient's urine, and that's what I'm going to treat. Okay, for sure. Yep. So going off of that, um, I do want to touch on the speed of which you, you know, implement binders and how, because, you know, just reading your materials saying like taking it slow to avoid reactions, um, how you can, you know, avoid a reaction and continuously progress. Is it a detox issue? Is it like a clogged lymphatic and, and liver drainage system? Like no, that's slowing you down? Um, it's a detox issue. Um, the word binder confuses people. When you hear the word binder, the, 
the uh, sense of that word is tight binding. Like, imagine my fingers are completely interlocked and intermeshed and I can't pull them apart. Like, that's tight binding. That's not how these work. They bind lightly. The best example I could use would be activated charcoal, which doesn't technically bind. The word we use is adsorbs, meaning it kind of lightly connects at the very surface of the, of the charcoal piece. Toxin lightly touches it. My patients call it static cling. So it's not tightly bound, it's loosely bound. So as charcoal binds toxins, basically toxins are processed by the liver, all toxins. Then they go to the gallbladder where bile binds the toxin and it starts its journey down the intestine. So our natural ability is to bind the toxin to bile. It goes into the small intestine. It continues on its journey through the large intestine and out the body in an ideal world. However, there's a wrinkle here, which is the body really treasures bile. It's very important. And so in order to conserve bile, we have what's called the enterohepatic circulation, where bile starts through the small intestine. And when it reaches a certain point in the small intestine, the bile is reabsorbed and goes back to the gallbladder where it's stored. Unfortunately, it's reabsorbed with the toxin still attached so that that mold doesn't get out of the body attached to just bile. What we have to do is have something that binds a little better than bile, and that's what all of these binders do. They bind a little better than bile, attached to the toxin, and it pulls it through the intestinal system and out. So, I mean, that's the basic process of binding. What I... When I, I got, I digressed a little bit. I was talking about adsorption and how weakly the binding process is. It's strong enough that it works, but it's weak enough that if we overdo the binder, the molecules of toxin attached to the binder will drop off by that static cling and get reabsorbed through the intestines and go back into the circulation where it'll make us worse. Bottom line, if you're taking too much binder too often, you can actually mobilize toxin faster than you can process it, and you will get worse. And that is not rare. It happens for almost everyone somewhere along the line. So you referred to the my process as going slow. Absolutely. That's why we want to go slow, because if we go fast, we're going to make our patient way worse, and they're not going to be very happy. And Forgive me, but as a physician, making my patient worse is definitely not something I have in my mind. So this is a process that requires going slowly. Once again, everybody's different biochemically and genetically. Some people can handle a fair amount of binder right from the get-go. Some people can handle almost none. So to answer your question about how do I figure out I start very low when I work up from it. Now I get cues or clues from my patients by their history. So if someone tells me that they've tried charcoal and they've tried clay and it made them really sick, my first question is, what dose did you use? Because I'm not going to do that again. 
how can I give you a lower dose and see if I can get a good binder into your body at any dose that will begin the process of getting the toxin pulled out of your body. So um, when I teach this to doctors, I have what I call constitutionally strong patients and what I call sensitive patients. So if I identify a patient as being sensitive, I will start with really, really tiny doses of binders. I will start, for example, with bentonite clay in liquid form, and I'll start with one drop once a day and slowly work up from there. And I've had people re react to that. So wow. I know that seems small, but for some people, that's not. If I have some people who are constitutionally strong, where they tell me, no, I can take any medication or anything you throw at me. I've never reacted to anything in my life. I might start with a capsule of clay and have them take one of those and then work up from there. And again, just to give you some sense of the other materials that we'd use with charcoal, for example, a, a constitutionally strong patient, I might start at one or two capsules a day. And someone who is sensitive, I might start on an eighth of a teaspoon once a day and work up from there. So again, how much you take is very important. And I know that there are people who've read my book and think they can treat themselves by the ideas there. And many of them have written and expressed their frustration that that didn't work out very well. So sure. it's pretty complicated treating mold toxicity, just like it's complicated treating Lyme disease. So I recommend that people find someone who knows what they're doing, because if they don't, the likelihood is they will get worse and not make progress. And I don't want to see anybody experience that. So if you go to my website, um, on my website, I have a whole tab for practitioners. These are doctors that I've either trained or worked with closely enough that I'm comfortable that they really know what they're doing. So. Great. Um, That's a great resource. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that's that's a brief discussion of binders. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. let's, let's take that into just out of my own curiosity about the detoxification pathways, how the lymphatic system ties into all this. Cause I know swollen lymph nodes can sometimes be um, symptoms as you know, of any toxin, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they can be. So we want to, for the body to be able to detoxify optimally, all of the organs of detoxification have to work as well as possible. So, for example, the liver is the main organ of detoxification. Sure. The, we've already talked about how important the intestine is to detoxification. Um, if there's leaky gut and that toxin is coming right through the lining, right into the circulation, not a good thing. If someone is constipated, then they're holding the binder with the toxin attached to it in their intestines for a prolonged period of time, and that ups the likelihood that they're going to reabsorb some of that toxin, and that is not a good thing either. So we have to get the liver and the bowel into optimal functioning in order for this to occur. The lymphatic system, the kidneys, the lungs, and the skin are the other organs of detoxification. So all of them 
are very, very helpful. For example, for the skin, anything that makes you sweat will help release toxins from the body. So sweating is good in any form you can do it. Sauna, hot tub, hot bath, um, going out on a hot day in, in the middle of summer and sweating, any form of sweat is a great way to get rid of toxins. So we want to optimize how our kidney is functioning by drinking a good quality water and lots of it. So we're flushing our kidneys as best we can. We want to get our lymphatics functioning. And for the lymphatics, that's not as easy for people to access. You may want to work with lymphatic drainage from a massage therapist who knows how to do that, an osteopathic physician who can do uh, uh, lymphatic drainage techniques. And there are some supplements that are excellent for improving lymphatic detoxification. And in fact, there are some supplements that will help the liver, the gut, the kidneys, um, improve their ability to function as well. Okay, great. And, and like uh, milk thistle, for example, would that be one like for the liver? Right. Uh, for the okay. liver, there's a number that are well known to be very effective. Milk thistle is probably the best known and most effective. Also, alpha lipoic acid um, um, is, is another one. There's a host of homeopathic remedies that I like a lot for the liver. Um, like apohepat is an excellent one. It's a pecana uh, remedy. There's one from Beyond Balance um, called Toxease, which I like a lot. But there's a lot of practitioners have their favorite liver substances that work. Um, in addition to the liver, we want to improve the functioning of the gallbladder in two ways. One, we want to help the gallbladder to empty more effectively, and we want the gallbladder to make better quality bile to do its work better. So to make better bile, we can use a variety of things like um, phosphatidylcholine to help the liver empty, uh, I'm sorry, the gallbladder to empty. Um, um, bitters are a very effective way to get the, and, and again, I've got all of this in more detail laid out in my book. For sure. Yeah. Great. So we've touched a lot about um, binders, detoxification. Um, let's let's go ahead and do a little brief discussion of antifungals. And um, if we have time for it, some mast cell um, activation, tie that in a little bit if we can. Sure. Okay. So for candida, and when I'm when I start treating antifungals, I'll usually start on candida first before I get to um, mold itself. The medications we use for candida are less hard on the body than the antifungals per se. So I typically would start with nystatin and then add diflucan in order to get it out of the gut area. I will usually use a biofilm dissolving agent along with in both the gut and the sinus area. Mold and candida secrete a thick layer of biofilm, which is a kind of glop that surrounds the cell and protects it from the immune system and from the antifungals we're using. So in order for our medications and natural materials to work, we have to dissolve the biofilm. So okay. there's a, cu a couple of materials I like for that. There's one made by Clare Labs called Interphase Plus, which 
is an excellent one and another one made by Beyond Balance called MCBFM. These are excellent biofilm dissolving agents for the gut. So I typically will start with Dystatin, the biofilm dissolving agent, then add Diflucan to that. And when someone is handling that, then I'll add an antifungal like the medication Sporinox or uh, compounded Amphotericin B. And that's That kind of a regimen works very well. For many of our patients, if we don't treat their sinuses also, they're not going to get well because that's a huge reservoir of mold and candida in the body that we have to go after. So we will typically use, again, antifungals in a form of a nasal spray. That could include nystatin, ketoconazole, itraconazole, or amphotericin B, along with a biofilm dissolving agent and colloidal silver. So, So yes, for those of you who are kind of totaling it up, This is a very complicated process. It's not simple, and it has to be done for a longer period of time than you would think because mold and candida do not leave the body readily. They're very happy in your body. You are providing it with a fabulous uh, batch of nutrients. It's warm, tropical temperature inside your body. It's dark. It's moist. It doesn't leave unless we make it leave. And that isn't an easy thing to do. So it typically takes for most of my patients at least a year on this complete regimen to get better. And some people take two or three years. A few lucky people will get better in three to six months, but I don't ever promise that because that just will lead to disappointment for a lot of folks. This is a long-term project. However, it is treatable. I have successfully treated at least 4,000 people with mold toxicity. So I can wow. tell you, yes, that's treatable. That's amazing. Just, but it does take time. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So let's go ahead and tie that all into the inflammation, the mast cells, because I'm sure you have seen that a lot in most of your mold toxicity patients. We do. The longer you have mold toxicity and it doesn't get treated, the more likely it will trigger three different other effects in the body, which will prevent healing if we don't treat them first. And those are mast cell activation, which you're referring to, and limbic dysfunction and vagal nerve dysfunction. Those three conditions are very, very interwoven. They each interconnect to the other. The limbic system is profoundly affected by the vagal system. Both are profoundly affected by mast cells. So after mold toxicity has gone on for a while, I would estimate that 70 plus percent of my patients will develop mast cell activation and a similar percent will develop limbic dysfunction and vagal nerve dysfunction. So I want to talk about all three of those um, kind of, in the same breath because they're all important. The one that's getting a lot of press these days is mast cell activation. It went from never being talked about Mm in 2016 to being the subject of multiple summits and discussions and chat rooms. Everybody's talking about it now. That's good. Uh, We owe that to a wonderful book by uh, Larry Afrin, who is a physician who wrote a book 
called Never Bet Against Occam. Um, and it's really about how prevalent mast cell activation is and the whole gamut. Mast cells are an immune cell that lines the surfaces of every tissue in the body to protect it from toxins or infectious agents that are coming into that area. So they're particularly prevalent in the sinus, throat, gut, vaginal areas, which have interfaced with the outside of the body. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what they do over time, they go from being protective to being overprotective. That's what we call mast cell activation, where mold toxicity over time will make the, the mast cells overreactive. So they begin to react to things that we don't need them to react to. That means that in extreme cases, and I've seen it more often than you might think, even water can trigger mast cell activation if you drink it. And people go, that's crazy. How could water trigger it? If the mast cells are reactive enough, it will. And I've had no, dozens no. of patients. Go ahead. Yeah, just sorry to cut you off there, but with a patient like that, how do you go about that? You know, how like because water is essential. <laughs> you treat it. Right, it's right. Treatable. It's treatable. But only if you think about it. Unfortunately, in many academic centers, they will only treat you for mast cell activation if you get a positive test on some very esoteric, difficult-to-do tests. Now, those tests exist. They're very difficult to get accurately because the mast cells, when they're activated, release over 200 different biochemical mediators, all of which cause inflammation. But they're in the system fleetingly, just momentarily. So if you don't draw the blood to catch someone when they're actively in this process, you're going to miss it. And I've had hundreds of patients told by major academic centers, you can't have mast cell activation because your tryptase is normal or your other, the various tests that we can do for it. And I go, oh, right. oh, come on. This patient is giving a classical description of mast cell activation. If you react or a loved one or a friend reacts to eating anything within mm -hmm. minutes, that's mast cell activation. Nothing wow. else reacts that fast. Allergy doesn't happen that fast. Anaphylaxis doesn't happen that fast. So if you react immediately to something that you are eating, and keep in mind, this is not allergy, but it looks like it. Because some of the things that people react to include immediate stuffy nose, heart palpitations, sweating, intestinal cramps and pain, bloating, fatigue, cognitive impairment immediately. What about like dizziness or like, is that yeah. also, also possible? Dr. Efren in his wonderful book lays out every system of the body and the symptoms that can be associated with it. And here's the complicated part. The symptoms of mast cell activation can look exactly like mold toxicity. It's that ubiquitous. So separating them is important. And not everyone has the 
intestinal reaction. There are others as well. But when someone does react immediately, great. I know what I'm dealing with. I know how to treat it. But I always have to keep in the back of my mind, this could be mast cell activation too, because that also has those symptoms. So once we identify what it is, mostly by symptoms, not by testing, we treat it. And typically, a treatment needs to include working on the mast cells from every possible angle possible. Remember, we talked, there are 200 plus biochemical mediators. The main one is histamine, but there are many others as well. So we want to come at it from as many directions as possible. That means, first of all, taking antihistamines. And there are two kinds of antihistamines, what are called H1 and H2 receptor blockers. So uh, you've all probably taken H1 blockers. You might not have heard that name before, but it's things like Zyrtec, Allegra, Claritin, Zizol. They're H1 blockers. H2 blockers are pepsid. So we would start by blunting the effect of the excess histamine on the body by mopping it up before it can mess with us. So taking something like Claritin and Pepsid at bedtime would be a perfect start. We would then want to take what we call mast cell stabilizers. These are substances that stabilize the membrane of the mast cell and make it less reactive. For these to work, you have to take them before you eat for the reasons that you figured out, because you have to have it in your body before you eat or anything you eat can trigger this reaction. So typically, the things I'm going to mention next are things that you would take um, a half an hour before eating. Could be 40 minutes or 20 minutes. It's not rigid. So one of the main ones that we would use would be quercetin. And we would take quercetin, um, again, 30 minutes before each meal and at bedtime. Another um, mast cell stabilizer that I like a lot is called Paramine. It's the brand name of a perilla seed extract. Again, one 30 minutes before each meal. We would also take uh, um, enzymes that are called DAO, diamine oxide. Diamine oxide is, a, is an enzyme that you make in your own body to break down excess histamine. So we want to support that in the body by taking some DAO Again, 30 minutes before each meal. You can take a tryptase inhibitor called All Clear. Again, 30 minutes before each meal. So those are some of the most common materials. And I, I hope you're seeing in the way I'm laying it out that they do different things. They don't all do the same thing. They're coming at the mast cells from as many directions as possible. And here's the good news. If you have mast cell activation, the vast majority of people feel way better within a week or two from starting this, these supplements. So, yes, we can treat it. But I'm going to also emphasize you have to keep treating the mast cell activation throughout mold treatment because the mold toxin is going to keep triggering the mast cell activation. So I've had, unfortunately, a number of patients who had great response to the mast cell activation. They loved their supplements. They worked. Three months later, they stopped them going, no, that's not bothering me anymore. No, you have to keep taking it 
it would be kind of like someone telling you, my blood pressure is under complete control on the medication I'm taking, so I'm going to stop my medication now. It's like, no, it's under control because you're taking the medication. So I, people, I understand this. People get tired of taking stuff. But ultimately, the mast cell activation will be cured. You won't have it once you get the mold out of your body. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh. And, and okay. yeah, would you like to uh, say any, anything else on that topic? No, I could say more, but I don't um, know, there's, yeah. a whole, there's a whole chapter of my book on it. Um, the I did want to talk a little bit about limbic dysfunction and vagal dysfunction and how to treat it, because for a lot of patients, that's essential. The limbic system and the vagal system are, again, affected by mold toxin, so that when the limbic system, the limbic system is a part of your brain that monitors, regulates, and controls emotion and sensitivity. So when patients tell me that they have some degree of anxiety or depression or mood swings or OCD, that's limbic. When they have any sensitivity of any kind, light, sound, chemicals, touch, food, EMF, that's limbic. Most of my patients will tell me they have those symptoms, and that means, excuse me, we have to work on the limbic system first. If we don't quiet the limbic system down, we're not going to be able to work with anything that we've talked about so far. Okay, Because the limbic system's job with the vagus system, which I'll talk about in a second, is to protect you. Not trying to hurt you. Trying to protect you. It is scrutinizing the stimuli in your environment, internal and external, for safety. And if it doesn't think you're safe, it's not going to let you take the things you need to take to get well. It's going to go simply something like, I don't know if that's safe for you, so I'm not going to let you do it. And it won't let you do it by giving you symptoms that you're not going to like. Okay. Now, this is not psychological. It is neurological. So for all of those unfortunate people who've been told this is in your head, yes, it's in your brain, but it's not in your mind. You don't think you're sick. You are sick. And it's fixable by rebooting the limbic system. So there are several methods that we use to reboot the limbic system. Um, they're easily available online. The two that we use the most are the Annie Hopper DNRS program, which stands for Dynamic Neural Retraining Systems, or the Asha Gupta Amygdala Retraining Program. They're both okay. ex excellent programs. If you Google them and go online, um, both Annie and Ashok have some introductory videos that you can look at to get a feel for what their program consists of so you understand what you're getting into. But you have to do it every day, not all day long. But if you have to do at least 20 minutes of limbic retraining, or it's not going to work. However, when it does work, which it will within six weeks, patients feel noticeably better less sensitive, less anxious, and far more able to do everything else we want them to do. So the last piece of this 
triad here is the vagal system. Uh, the vagus is a cranial nerve. It's in a separate part of the brain from the limbic system. But physiologically, it interfaces with the limbic system very, very closely. Now, one of the things the vagus nerve regulates and controls, in addition to your intestines, intestinal motility, but it also regulates your heart and lungs so that you kind of need your vagus nerve. And it is a key component of what we call the autonomic nervous system. So again, mold toxicity tends to affect the autonomic nervous system and cause symptoms in that area, which include the gut regulating blood pressure, which can sometimes go very low to the point that you're not actually having enough of a blood pressure to circulate blood through your body. These are fairly common. So again, we have treatments for the vagus nerve that are pretty specific. Um, there's um, a medical device called frequency-specific microcurrent. There's another medical device called brain tap. There's a vagal nerve stimulator. There's some exercises in a book by Stanley Rosenberg called Accessing the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve. And there's a technique called osteopathic cranial manipulation, which is great for this. So those are methods combining the limbic and the vagal system are necessary with mast cell treatment to get our patient online. Now, patients who are unusually sensitive absolutely have to do this first or they won't get well. Patients who are constitutionally strong may not need to do any of those. So again, it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment program. We have to really spend time with our patient to understand how their body works, what their body is telling them, how it is reacting and responding in order to do right by them. For sure. Yeah. And I know we're closing in on time. So I just wanted to ask if there's anything you wanted to mention. I, of course, am going to link all these resources into the show notes. Um, the books are great resources for the audience listening. But yeah, if there's anything else you wanted to mention really quick, um, definitely feel free to do so. I just want to emphasize, this is a kind of a scary topic. I know that. But it's if it's missed, as a diagnosis, people can stay really sick and disabled for years so that, first of all, think of it as a possibility because it's way more common than many doctors know. And then the more important message is, and it's treatable. So we, if you have it, the good news is whatever has been causing you to be disabled, now we can treat it. For sure. Yeah. And that's a great, great note to end on. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nathan, for coming on the show today. And um, I know there's so much more information out there. And uh, Dr. Nathan has so much information on not just mold, but Lyme and a bunch of other um, biotoxic illnesses and um, co-infections, all that stuff. So definitely check that out and I'll link it all below. But thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. The content provided by the Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. 
the Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com, the Synthesis of Wellness LLC, and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.